Good morning, South Hills, and welcome on this uh, warm uh, day. Uh, this is my kind of weather. This is, uh, this is California weather, and uh, this is sort of makes me feel at home because Sacramento is like this most of the summer. So uh, thank you for helping me feel at home. Can you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4 as we continue in our study on um, conversations with Jesus? Remember two weeks ago, uh, Jeff uh, talked to us about a conversation that Jesus had with uh, Thomas. I think Thomas gets one of the baddest raps in Scripture because he only asks to see what the other guys had already seen. Last week, we looked at to Jesus as a middle schooler and a conversation that a middle schooler had with his parents in the temple in Jerusalem. Today, we're going to look at the story of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well. Entitled the message, Jesus and a member of the Lonely Hearts Club. And all I could think of was the first time I saw a Sergeant Pepper when I titled that. I remember exactly where I was when I first saw that album. So I was trying to think about how to introduce this. And a movie that, over the years, that uh, sort of captured my imagination because I had some experience in hospitals with doctors was uh, Patch Adams. You know, it's a, it's a story about a medical student who wants to do medicine differently. It's based on a true story. A guy by the name of Hunter Doherty Adams, who was determined to become a doctor because he wanted to help people. But what he learned at medical school sort of fell short, not in the science but in the pathos and in the pain of people. And he thought if you could add humor and pathos to science, then you got something. Because he didn't like the impersonal way he saw some practitioners of medicine. Now, there's many doctors who aren't impersonal. But all of us have had some impersonal doctors. And sometimes as a pastor, I've wanted to pull them inside and say, can I help you with your bedside manner? <laughs> you know, the only place I've been invited to medical school to teach was in Uganda. It's a wonderful experience to be with young third world doctors and to, uh, to teach them in some bedside manner and to do some things with them. It was just a, a, just a great experience and for me to learn from them about all of the challenges that uh, they face. You see, Jesus was frustrated by religious practices that adopted an impersonal approach to faith. He was 
frustrated by the fact that the religious leaders teach, taught people as projects and saw them as assignments rather than as persons. He wanted them to understand that everybody is created in the image and likeness of the true and living God. And because of that, they must be treated with dignity and respect and with openness. You see, it's really easy to get caught up in just performing the functions of your job and to forget about the reason for your job, which is people. Today's conversation occurs at Jacob's well. It occurs at an unusual time of the day. It's noon, the hottest part of the day, or one of the hottest parts of the day in the Middle East. It's a time where no one usually goes to the well. And for a Jew, this is occurring in hostile territory, this conversation. Samaritan and woman were bad words to the pious Jew. You see, there was a prayer that a very religious Jew prayed where he thanked God that he was not a woman. You thank God that half the population who bear his image. Think about that. For Jesus' disciples and for others, Samaritan, woman, Gentile were nouns. And what he wanted them to understand is they needed to be adjectives. He needed them to understand that it's Samaritan person. And person's the noun. That it's woman, person. And person's the noun. That it's Gentile, person. And person's the noun. You see, we do ministry and are involved in ministry for people, not for programs. For people. Programs are a vehicle, but it's the people that was so important. When you look at John's gospel, one of the things that jumps out at you very quickly is that ministry in John's gospel is local. There's a lot more individual stories or the stories are larger about the individuals and it's personal. Chapter 3, we have a lengthy story about Nicodemus. You get a lengthy story about Thomas. You get a lengthy story about the woman at the well. You get a lengthy story about Mary and Martha and the whole Lazarus story. There's all sorts of local, individual, and personal stories in John's gospel. It's why it's called the intimate gospel. 
And Jesus and the woman are both at the well, and they're both trying to avoid people. Have you ever tried to avoid somebody? Ever walked in the grocery store and saw somebody that you just wanted not to see? Go down the other aisle? Well, Jesus is at the well at noon in Samaria because he's getting out of Judea and he's heading back to Galilee because he doesn't want the confrontation with the religious leaders yet. The woman is at the well because she's gone there when she knows most of the other people of town won't be there because of her shame. Here's the setting that John gives us. Verse chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's a really important phrase in this text. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. That idea of he had to go through Samaria is not about geography. It's about mission. There's a divine appointment, and he had to go through Samaria. Travel between uh, Judea and Galilee, between the south and the north, the easiest and quickest way to go is through Samaria. It's just the quickest. If, if you typed into your Google Maps or whatever device you use, that's the fastest route that would have come up. But no pious Jew took that route. Instead, they went northeast to Jericho out of Jerusalem, up the Jordan Valley, and then back west. Instead of going this way, they went this, this, this. Took more time, more expense. Jesus gets there at noon and he shows up at Jacob's well and he's tired, he's thirsty. But he knows there won't be a lot of people at the well at noon. There's certain barriers that Jesus is going to break here at the well. He's going to bridge a racist barrier. Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. He's going to break a sexist barrier between men and women. Gender conflicts have been around forever. He's going to address a religious barrier between the Samaritans and the Jews. And then he's going to address a shame barrier. Because this woman is at the well when no one else will be there. 
And we're going to find out why when Jesus uh, exposes her history. It's interesting that those barriers still exist. We're still addressing them. Much of my ministry has been about those. I lived in urban Los Angeles during the Rodney King and the O.J. Simpson trials. In fact, the presiding appellate court justice for Los Angeles who heard all the appeals for O.J. was the moderator of that church. The SWAT commander was on our worship team. And the guy who ran the bunker when L.A. went into emergency was the chair of our elder board. We lived in the curfew zone. We got to experience some of that and what it meant. And I heard some of the stories from the guys. I've lived through the, the gender experience. All sorts of religious barriers. But let me tell you, as a pastor, most, most discussions are about breaking the shame barrier. Shame isn't about what you did, it's about who you are. And many people are just locked up in that shame barrier. This lady is alone at the well at noon because there's a shame barrier. Shame's powerful. And Jesus is there. And there's this incredible hostility between Jews and Samaritans. The origin of the hostility goes back to 700 BC when the Syrians invaded. And what happened was the local Samaritan women intermarried with the Syrian oppressors. They were seen as collaborators. And then 500 years later, 550 years later, in the Maccabean uprising, the Samaritans found themselves on the wrong side again. They sided with the Syrian Greeks. You say the hostility was 700 years? Yep. Middle East conflicts go deep. That was powerful. And then you add to it the theological differences. See, the Samaritans did not regard the Old Testament poetry or the prophets as the text of God. They regarded the Pentateuch as the text. And their Pentateuch was a little different than the Jews' Pentateuch. And then to add insult to injury, they claimed that their Pentateuch was the original Pentateuch. My Bible's better than your Bible, is the way it went. And then, they claimed that Mount Gerizim 
was the place that you worship, not Jerusalem at the temple. And then, Messiah is called Tahib. And Tahib is from the sons of Levi and Joseph. He's not from Judea. Now, for the Jews, because of Micah and everything else, we, we know Judea. But for them, no, Tahib is there. And there was only two prophets, Moses and Tahib, Messiah, the Restorer. So here's Jesus at the well with this woman, with all of that sort of hostility that would cause people to go via the Cape because they don't want to have any communication or any contact. And they're alone together. She's avoiding her neighbors. Why? Because she's either the most unfortunate widow in history with five husbands or the poorest chooser of partners that you've ever met. And now she's living with some guy. He must needs go through Samaria. Do you see the divine appointment? It's for a single Samaritan woman at the well alone. Now, in most Middle Eastern villages, and if you go to the well today in most developing countries, it's a hive of activity. You know what good church planning does in Africa? They find a place where there's water, they build a church and a well. Because they know everybody in the village will come to the well. And while they're at the well, they hear people worshipping and see people praying, and they hear the word proclaimed. I can't tell you how often I pump water at the well to have conversations with the locals. And you just see hundreds of jerry cans lined up at the well. You fill them. There's this encounter in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. See, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. This, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Or another way to translate that is, or, they, or do not use dishes or utensils that Samaritans have used. Some of you may have an alternative translation there. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, 
everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She shows up at the well, Jesus is there, and Jesus asks her for a drink. There's a a triple strike going on here. This is a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. This is a one, this is a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. Two, and this is a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman to use her utensils to get water. would never, ever happen. Jesus is breaking every convention. And every religious Jew who who hears this starts to get annoyed. How could he be Messiah and do that? How could he be the Christ and do that? And she misses the point that he says to her. She just keeps the conversation at the natural level. And Jesus goes on to offer her something that will have her never thirst again. And they pass each other in the conversation. She's got offered this wonderful alternative and she can't hear it. She just can't hear it. And her question is, how could a passing Jew be greater than the patriarch Jacob? She's incredulous. He says, Jacob's water's good, but I got something better. I want to offer you a relationship with the true and living God where you'll never thirst again and the water will be artesian. It'll be bubbling up from the earth continually and perennially and it'll satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And she can't hear the offer in that encounter. She's like Nicodemus, who couldn't hear about being born again. They're just stuck at the natural level. All of us have friends and loved ones who are stuck at the same spot, the natural level. And her heart's aching. It's just aching. You say, how do you know that, Paul? Jesus looks at her and says, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. 
What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Is Jesus cruel here? When he rubs her nose in it? Ever wondered about that? She's there alone. He had to put some pieces together. She's filled with shame. Why does he increase her shame? It's cruel if you do that and don't offer somebody an alternative, isn't it? She tells him the barest truth. She has no husband. It's not a lie. She just gives him the minimum data. This is a stranger. And then all of a sudden, he penetrates deep into her life, and he tells her her personal history. Verses 16 and 19 about that personal history. She's given him the Reader's Digest version of her story, and now he gives her the whole story. Because in order to be found, you've got to be found out first. Repentance is powerful. In order to overcome shame, you've got to own your stuff. You've got to own your sin. A woman couldn't divorce in the first century. But a court could appoint it in such a way that a husband could divorce her wife or a wife could pay for her husband to divorce her. Okay? There's some people who sitting here going, thought about that. There were no limit to the number of marriages in Judaism, but the rabbis said three was sort of the max. She had five. And the one she's living with isn't her husband. Do you get why it's Jesus and the Lonely Hearts Club? She's searching in all the wrong places. She kept getting naked but she never got naked enough. She stopped at the skin, never went to the soul. And that's what Jesus is asking her to do, to get honest. Tell the real story. He's offered a water that will satisfy. She can't hear that yet. And so he has to expose her thirst. And he says, you've looked for it in all the wrong places. Six guys that we know of. And they haven't satisfied. You see, 
It's powerful what he does. And she then realizes that he is a prophet, that he is indeed Tahib, Messiah. That's the beginning of the discovery. She's on the brink of being found. And then look at what she does. In verse 20 through 25, there's this theological discussion. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Is this deflection? Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come that when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks, seeks. Excuse me. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything. Is she distracting Jesus because he's got too close and she's afraid of being found out like this? Or is this genuine interest? And it's an obstacle for her, a real obstacle. We don't know. But look what Jesus does. He answers her question by showing her a new way. He says, the question is not where you worship, but how you worship. In spirit and in truth. Do you see the connection back to Nicodemus? In a couple of weeks Jim's going to talk about this. Her struggle is that God hasn't been real or personal. And so she's been looking for that contact, that connection in all the wrong places. She kept jumping into bed. She was using sex as a substitute for spirituality. Jesus looks at her and says, you worship in spirit and in truth. The true worship involves who God is and what God has done, is doing, and will do. The true worship is deeply, deeply satisfying. That's what you all experience on Sundays when you come together. It's one of the reasons we come together, and I watch it. It's powerful here because it connects us to the true and living God. And then there's this revelation in verse 26, and Jesus looks at her and says, I'm the one speaking to you. I'm he. 
I'm he. She is both found out and she's found at that point. I'm he. I'm the one. Ministry is local and it's personal. He must needs go through Samaria. Why? For this woman, that woman, he breaks the racist, the gender, the religious, and the shame barrier for one woman. That's what a church is about, isn't it? That's why you're here. For people. That's why you're going to call a new pastor. And it's about mission. It's, it's about mission. It's about people who don't know Jesus finding Jesus. It's about people being found out and being found. And he shows us how you do it. Personal encounters with people. Don't rely on a program. They're helpful. But in the end, it's about personal conversation and personal connections. And she's looked in all the wrong places for those. You see, our deepest fear is to be found out, isn't it? My deepest fear is that you'll realize that I'm a pretender. It's my fear. That I'm not the real thing. Our deepest fears is that we'll be found out, that our secrets will be exposed, our struggles will surface, and people will reject us because of that. I have no husband. She told the truth, she just didn't tell all the story. And so Jesus exposes that. And she realizes, come see a man who knows everything about me. She's found out, she's found, and she wants other people to find him. She goes into the village and becomes one of the great evangelists of the New Testament. We don't have time to explore that this morning. You see, our deepest need is to be found by Jesus, the one who can satisfy the thirst, the one who can give you water that just is, is satisfied. On a day like today, if you were out working for a few hours, water becomes just one of the great things of life. Jesus offers to her, this water that will just keep coming up and satisfy. Ashley Montague says this, in the Western world, it is highly probable that sexual activity, indeed our preoccupation with sex that characterizes our culture, is in many cases not an expression of sexual interest at all, but rather a search for satisfaction it's a deep desire for connection and a cry for contact. 
You must worship God in spirit and in truth. Here's the contact. Here's God. I'm he, he says. That's who Jesus is. He's the true and living God who died on the cross for our sins so that we can be found. And his reckless, relentless love chases after us. That's how we were found. You see, the problem isn't that we get naked. The problem is that we don't get naked enough. The problem is we ask sex to bear a weight of our longings that it cannot bear as good as it is. What we do is we stop at the skin and we never get to the soul. And Jesus offers her the soul. He says to her, you've been getting naked. You just haven't got naked enough and I'm offering you the water that will satisfy. Phil Yancey says that so often we think of sex as a rival to spirituality. But just maybe in the Western world, it's a pointer. Now, please don't turn me off at that. When a culture so completely blocks the thirst for transcendence, when it so blocks off the need for God, the only mystery left is physical and sexual. We shouldn't be surprised then that the primal longings reroute themselves into mere physicality. Either in our addiction to Hallmark movies and romance or into pornography. Whichever we use as our escape, Instead of despairing and moralizing, we should address the thirst that multiple lovers can never satisfy. You see, at the well, one human being is found out and found by God himself. Have you been found out? Have you been found because in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And at communion, we remember the one who found us, don't we? And we say thank you. We say thank you. You see, there was this relentless love of Jesus. And it drives the whole story here. And it explains why he had to go through Samaria, why he needs go through Samaria. South Hills, I hope in the days ahead, you're a church that's driven by mission, where you must needs go through and do things so that people can be found out, their shame, their guilt exposed, and God's healing grace administered to it. Joan, in grief share, you get to do that. If Ronnie was here, that's what's happening at CR. That's what you guys do in CR. 
It's what happens at wildfire and wave. It's what should be happening in our small groups. They become the place where people come in and are invited in and make real connections and build real community where they're found out and they're found. And you know what we get to offer? Water that deeply satisfies. That romance and pornography can't. Our problem is that we keep getting naked for all the wrong things. And we just don't get naked enough. We're here as a church to minister to people who feel like that girl does. And we have grace to offer them. God's amazing grace. At the table this morning, we get to celebrate that, don't we? We get to remember that. We get to remember what Jesus, that Jesus found us out, and he found us. His grace, his mercy, his hope. As you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you remember who Christ is and you celebrate what he did for you. When you take the bread, you remember that Jesus Christ is the bread of life, don't you? That Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That his death on the cross took care of our sin and our shame. That on the third day he rose again and he rose in power and great glory. And we're no longer bound by sin and death because he's alive. And we have the newness of life in us, the power of his spirit. That he ascended on the th- into heaven and there he is our high priest where he makes intercession for us and he rules and reigns over his church so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church and one day he's coming again in power and great glory and he's going to right all wrongs and he's going to resurrect dead bodies And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And God himself will be all in all. When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, that's what you remember. That's the focus of the table. So will you join me as we eat and drink in remembrance of Christ Jesus, the one who found us out and the one who found us. And if you haven't been found by Jesus, maybe today's the day. Will you consider his claims? Will you eat and drink in remembrance of Christ Jesus? May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and God himself be gracious to you. May the Lord lift you up and turn his face towards you and God himself give you peace.